Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. And uh, he had comments encouraging Christ followers, not so much, I mean, the whole letter focuses on encouragement, but it also focuses on the return of Christ. Uh, But he ends the letter uh, looking at encouraging one another and things he emphasized throughout. And he talked about specifically respecting pastors, not just pastors, but ministry leaders, uh, people that are in charge over you. Uh, He also talked about being joyful always and giving thanks always, which is a common theme that he puts in a lot of his letters uh, to Philippians, to other people. Uh, He wrote that same thing. And we're supposed to be the church. We're supposed to be joyful and giving thanks. Uh, But then he also says this, test or validate prophecies, right? And, 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 and we said not just prophecies, but we should validate any spiritual things because uh, understanding is that God is a spirit, says that throughout the Bible, and this God who is a spirit sent his son to become human, born a human, fully God, fully man, died, then was raised from the dead by that same spirit of God that God puts in us, so it would make sense that we should expect that there are some supernatural spiritual things that might happen that we might not understand, but we should test and validate those against the Bible and not just accept, you know, every weird thing that happens that that's a supernatural thing or every person that says, hey, I've got a prophecy from God, we shouldn't be expected to believe them, but also not immediately reject. And what he says is, Test them. Don't squelch or, or extinguish, you know, the, the Holy Spirit or the power of the Spirit or a prophecy, but to test and validate it. Now, he goes on immediately after, and if you open your book to 1 Thessalonians, he goes on uh, in chapter 5, and he tells them why, he says, to test prophecies. But before he, we, you go there, before we jump in there, I want to tell you why. Because not only then, but now, there were people that were saying, oh, the rapture has already happened, Jesus has already come and returned and taken people away, even in that early time, as soon as that was after the death of Jesus. There were people who were telling the Thessalonians, hey, you're you're too late, you missed it. Christ has already returned and taken his people with them. Uh, I'm speaking from prophetically from God. I know that to be true, which is why Paul says, eh, not true. But to test those things, and, and for those of us that have been around, you've probably heard on TV where so-and-so or somebody says the world is going to end on such such date, okay. excluding Y2K. How many people remember the whole Y2K thing? That wasn't the world is going to end. That just meant computers were going to end. Or if you were like me, a geek, they were going to rise up. And that's a whole different conversation. And some people thought that was going to be the end, but that wasn't prophesied in the Bible. Uh, and that didn't happen. But there have been so many people who have, and, and how many of you guys have heard of people say the world's going to end, the world's going to end on this date, and then that date comes, and it passes. And it's shocking to me, right, I would hope that if I were to stand here and tell you guys the world is going to end on this date, and that date came and passed, that the next time I said that, that you guys would be like, is it really, though? I mean, because, and then there are people who have done this multiple times, and people still believe them. And here's an example. I'm just going to run through a couple of these really quickly. Uh, as early as 500 A.D., 
this guy named Hippolytus of Rome, and he, along with two others, predicted that Jesus would return in the year 500 A.D. And they predicted this based on, I don't know how they got there, but the dimensions of the ark. They said that the dimensions of the ark were crucial to Jesus and to God. And so based on those dimensions, they said it was going to happen in 500 A.D. It did not. Uh, And then in 1000 A.D., uh, Pope Sylvester II and other Catholic priests, nothing against the Catholics, uh, but they predicted that Christ would return in the year 1000 because of the millennium. So they said, hey, the millennium is approaching, kind of like we did Y2K, millennium is approaching, Christ is going to return in the millennium. When the millennium came, and when it got to 1001, they said, oh, we got it wrong. It's not that he's going to return at the millennium. He's going to return after a millennium. So they modified that and said he's going to return in the year 1033, a millennium after his death, burial, and resurrection, which he did not. And then in 1814, uh, there was a a self-proclaimed prophetess named Joanna Southcott who predicted that, and I love this one. This would make great movies. Oh, it was. There's a movie. That's weird. Uh, That... Jesus Christ was going to return as a baby and be born of a virgin again. She claimed to be that virgin. She was 64. And, and I, I'm, I shouldn't say this, I don't mean this in a mean way, but I love the way that God works. Because December 25th, she said, that's when she was going to give birth to the new baby Jesus, that would be his return. December 25th, I don't mean to be foul, but she died. And if you can imagine this in the voice of Maury Purvridge, she was not pregnant. God was not the father. Nothing happened except she died. And I don't mean to be foul, but I think that's God like saying, eh, am I really going to return that way? Anyway, um, and then the next one, and this was of... Uh, the Jehovah Witness Church in 1874. There was a guy named Charles Russell. He was the first president of the Watchtower Society of Jehovah Witnesses, and he said that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1874, and then the resurrection of the dead saints would return in 1875, and then the rapture of the alive saints would return. That would happen in 1878, which kind of defies everything we just read. Because what we've been talking about is what Paul said, is that the dead in Christ will rise, and then we will rise and meet them in the air. So if this were to happen, they would have had to hang out up there for three years waiting on us, but that did not happen. But then they kind of amended that, and what they said was, in 1914, that he did return, invisibly. So he came, and he's here. We just can't see him. But his invisible presence is ruling and reigning on earth, and that at some point, whenever it does happen, when Armageddon happens, that's when he will physically be available for us to see. And then, uh, again, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with and who have heard of Jean Dixon. Anyone heard of her? And I don't know if she's a, I don't know what she is, but she makes predictions and all that kind of stuff. And she actually says that, He's going to return in 2020, and there are people that have said 2025, 2037. I mean, just 
kind of like take a calendar, cut it into pieces, throw it on the floor, pick one, and people say that's when he's going to return. And, and here's the thing that makes it not bad but just wrong. It's because uh, Jesus specifically said that no one knows the day or the hour that he's going to return. He says that we should be ready, but he says no one knows the day or the hour. No one, meaning no one then, no one now, no one in the future, except God the Father. He knows when he's going to say, it's time. And, you know, we can speculate all we want, but putting whole theologies together around this is the date, this is when it's going to happen, that seems to kind of defy and say, well, Jesus lied. Because he said no one knows the day except for Floyd or except for this person or except for the Jehovah Witnesses or except for Gene Dixon or all of these people. Uh, but, uh, and if you look, which we're about to do, open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. This is one of the first things that Paul addresses as he's winding down his letter. And I'm going to jump back a few verses just, just to make sure we're clear. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, he said, The Lord himself is going to come down from heaven, and we talked about this, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those, those who, who, who are Christ followers, who have died, uh, those people are going to rise first. And then, he says, after that, and that after that could be three years, doesn't seem like it, because he says after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And he says, hey, verse 18, encourage each other with these words that God is coming back for us. That should be an encouragement. But then, even though we have a chapter break there or you start a new chapter, the very next sentence, he says, or in theory, the very next breath, if you were saying this to us, would be, now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, underline day of the Lord because that's different from what he just described. He didn't use day in the Lord to describe the dead in Christ rising and in us rising because the day of the Lord is a different event that we'll get to in a minute. He says, you know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and while people are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come on them suddenly. This is nothing to do with the, the, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet blowing and then the, and then the dead in Christ rising and then those who are still alive meeting him in the air. This is a day of destruction and wrath on the people on earth. And he says destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on the pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now that phrase, day of the Lord, typically, biblically used to define two things. First, day of the Lord is the day of being delivered from the destruction by the Lord. So yeah, it's the day of the Lord. It, in both cases, it is a day where God pours out destruction on a nation, a group, or the planet as a whole, right? Or uh, it's a day of destruction where the destruction lasts considerably longer than a day. So in, 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 in one sense, it's the day of the destruction, but then God delivering his people. So it's the day of the Lord for us because everything around us gets destroyed, but God delivers his people. Or 98.9% .9 of the time, 
It's a day of destruction initiated by the Lord. It lasts a long time, and no one who is in that destruction vortex, scenario, community, nation, survives. Pretty much everyone dies. And the people that don't die, they feel the impact of the destruction because they're homeless, they're sick, they're wounded, everything. If you look biblically, every time this phrase is used, it is usually, the majority of the time, bad. And Amos, uh, the prophet Amos, He's a contemporary of Isaiah who wrote around 750-ish B.C. He's one of the first people to use that phrase, and this is how he uses it when he's writing. And he's writing to Israel, and he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Because uh, the Jewish people were thinking, you know what? The day of the Lord is going to be a day where we delivered, we are delivered from this destruction that God rains down on people, but we're going to be saved and he says, not really. He says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. In other words, you're fleeing this destruction, and you think, oh, great, I'm going to be safe. But then you turn, and you're faced with more destruction. You're not going to escape from it. Or you run into your house thinking, I'm safe, and you rest your hand on the wall, and you get bit by a snake. If he had said spider, I would have freaked out. But either way, he says it's not going to be a day of deliverance for you people. Now, he, again, he was writing specifically to Israel, but overarching, this is the way that term is used. And then he goes on and he says this, will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? In other words, there's going to be no hope for anyone when the day of the Lord comes, no single person, it's going to be, it's not going to be, woohoo, we're praying for the day of the Lord. It's going to be, sucks to be you, the day of the Lord is here. Which is why, uh, jump back to First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 5, which is why Paul goes on in verse 4, and he says, but you brothers are not in darkness. This isn't going to be you. It is a day of darkness, but this isn't going to be you because you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Because remember, he said in verse 2 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, but you're not in darkness, so this should surprise you like a thief. Verse 5, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. He says this is going to be a dark day, but you're sons of the light, and he's referencing what we spoke about a couple of weeks ago uh, when we said that you're going to be rescued from God's coming wrath. You're not going to have to sit through this. And he says, he goes on, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let me just stop there for a minute, because a helmet is something that protects you. It keeps you from danger. And what he's referencing is, hey, we're supposed to put on the helmet of salvation because it's going to protect us from danger. If you are saved and you're a child of light, and you belong to God, 
he's not going to allow you to go through this. He didn't appoint us to suffer wrath. And that's why earlier he said, when Jesus returns, we escape his coming wrath. Because that's not God's intent. It's like if you, if you walk into, because those of you with children, especially small ones, you walk into a school and you see a bunch of big older kids getting ready to put a peep down on your kids. And, 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 and the first thing you do is you grab your kids and you do what? You put them behind you. You move them to safety. And then most of you go tell the principal. Some of us, we'd roll up our sleeves and say, all right, I'm going to show you what, you know. But in any case, the idea is you protect the ones you love before you rain down wrath, which we shouldn't do. Did I just say we should beat up kids in school? That's not what I meant. It's a bad example, but you, you, you get what I'm talking about. Um, um, and that's the same thing that God does. Before he pours out his wrath, he's going to take those he loves, move them to a place of safety, and then he's going to let his wrath rain down. Uh, and it's really because he says this, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake, meaning alive when he returns, or asleep, meaning those who died when he returns, we may live together with him. And then he says, encourage one another and build each other up. This is supposed to be an encouragement to us, uh, not, and I get that some people are like, well, I don't quite understand theologically, and dig into it more and get a better understanding. And just like we said, test everything through Scripture. Don't just take my word for it. Look through all the Scriptures. Look what they say. But then we're supposed to encourage one another, like, yeah, you know what? There's going to be a day where Jesus comes back, and we get to spend an eternity with him. We're not going to have to worry about, you know, how do we feed the poor? How do we clothe people? How do we, as a small congregation, make sure we get enough baskets together so that we can give to those who are in need? And even though I said this, I didn't add this, that I realized that we're, you know, we're asking you guys to donate food so that we can give baskets to other people. But if you are someone or know of someone who needs baskets, because in the past when we've asked that, someone said, hey, you know what? I would love to give, but I'm hurting myself. My response is, hey, so why don't we give one to you? No one has to know. It's not like we publicly say, hey, we just gave a basket, you know, to Brandon and Lene because they both lost their jobs and they're hurting. Just give. But there's going to be a day where we don't need to do that because we're going to be in an environment and a culture where Christ provides everything that we need. Now, I wanted to share uh, another verse with you from Isaiah. Isaiah was a contemporary of Amos, or Amos was a contemporary of Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah says. And again, he was writing to Israel, he says, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will wreathe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. And you notice that same woman in labor sentence is the one that Paul used. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. And he says, see, the day of the Lord is coming a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. And again, overarching, this is Isaiah writing to the people of his day, but the theologically, that's what the day of the Lord is. It's where God pours out his wrath on those. And, and, and again, here's, here's the problem that we have with verses like these is because a lot of people will look at verses like these and we will share them 
to people who don't know God and say, you better get right or you're going to experience this and you're going to hell. And if you look throughout scripture, that's not the way this message of the return of Christ is used. Almost every single time it is shared, it's shared with Christ followers, not to scare you because you have already again entered into this relationship, but to inspire you to go out and share the gospel with others. Not that you go to people that don't know Christ and say, you better get right with Christ or you're going to hell. But because you know that this is what awaits those who reject Christ, that you are inspired to go and tell people, hey, there's a God who loves you and he died for you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. And you may think, ah, someday is a great day to do that. But there's no time like today to accept his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy and go forward. That's what we're supposed to do. Like we talked about last week, this is why a lot of people don't have the respect for pastors, because we're the gloom and doom. And I think I went to do a funeral with Diana's family. And one of the distant family members pulled me aside and said, hey, are you going to do this fire and brimstone thing at the funeral? I'm like, why would I do that? And I guess they had had the experience not too long, maybe a few weeks or months before that, where rather than celebrate the life of the deceased, the pastor went on a 40-minute binge of fire and hell and how you had to get right with God. And people were getting up and walking out of the funeral. And I get it. It is important. It is. It, it, it's super important. But also equally important is for those of us, and I shared this with the group that meets at CCAC, when we talk to people about God, if we're not doing it respectfully and out of love for them, don't bother. Don't do it at all. If your only reason to do it is to scare them into a relationship or, or, or smack them down or say, I'm right and here's why you're wrong, don't bother, because that's not what God did to us. And that's not what we should be doing to others. And that's why Paul, uh, I'm going to put this verse up here again, he reiterates, and this is super important, he says that for God has not appointed us, and this is the amplified version, to incur his wrath. He didn't select us to condemn us, but that we might obtain his salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the part that we're supposed to go share with people. That the same salvation uh, that, that is open to me and to my wife and to my kids and to my family is open to you and to your wife and your kids and your family and your friends. And rather than tell them you're going to hell if you don't, hopefully I'm inspired enough to share the hope that they have rather than the wrath that they will receive. But I hope that wrath inspires me to realize how important it is that we share it. Because so many congregations today, and I, heard for people, I, I don't want people to think that I, all I do is bash churches, but if we're not doing what God has called us to do, then we're not being the church. And, I, and, and, and I, we were talking about this at the meeting that we had for Around the South. It's great if we send people out and we, we tell you guys, hey, it's great. Uh, we want you to get involved in the crew and help out there. We want you to get involved with the food banks. We want you to get involved in the things that, in the community that help make the community better, that meet the needs of people in the community. 
But we also want when someone asks, why are you here doing this, giving your time to do this, that you would say, because God gave his life for me. So the least that I can do is take a little bit of time to help you. And don't end that with, or you're going to hell. Just end it with, because God loves you. And if you matter to God, you matter to me. And he ends with this. Uh, he died for us so that whether we're alive or dead, that we might live together with him. And I love it. He says, encourage one another, admonish one another, exhort one another, strengthen and build up one another with these words. This is encouraging stuff, not stuff to divide over, to argue over. And I will be the first to admit it's stuff that's great movies, end of the world, apocalypse, zombie, yay. But also... Great encouragement. Wow, we got to let people know how important it is. It was so important that Christ died for them. That's worth sharing with others about. And the best way to do that, I'm going to close with this as the band comes up. The best way to do it, and again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to know the Bible inside and out. You don't have to know all the books of the Bible in order. All you have to be able to do is say, here's what God did for me. He loved me, and he saved me, and he sent his son to die for me. And he can do the same for you. And I know we sing this song, and and I love it just because, one, is because I just love our praise team. They're awesome. But two, um, that song, um, I forgot the name of the song, I Saw the Light. Uh, there's a Christian, uh, David Crowder, who kind of took that song and redid it, and all of the church jumped on board and said, it's a David Crowder song. Let's praise it. Let's sing it. Let's worship it. But before it was a David Crowder song, it was uh, was Hank Williams. Yeah, Hank Williams, who was a country music singer, drinking and cussing, blah, 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 and wrote that song because of what God did in him. I don't know if he ever went out and shared other messages with people. I don't know if he turned out to be the best Christian that walked the face of the earth or if he continued drinking, cussing, doing whatever after that. But I know that he wrote that song because he said, I just want people to know what God did for me. That's the only thing God asked of me.